Right. Okay, well, thank you for, for that, uh, sharing that song with us. Um, I suppose I should ask you, is it well with your soul tonight? Because that's our topic for this evening, really. Uh, is, it, is it well with us? Are we content? Are we happy? And, but first of all, I'd just like to say that if you missed uh, yesterday, then I'm Ian McClellan. Uh, I'm a retired teacher uh, living in Devon and a long time participator in these conferences that began with Roy Hessian uh, in the 1950s. Yesterday, we considered Paul's plea to the Ephesians to live differently now that we were Christ they were Christians. And in Matthew 5, Jesus called the disciples, and that's us, to be salt and light. And I said towards the end uh, yesterday that sometimes we have to choose whether we're going to be salt and light, a bit like putting on clothes in the morning. And I just want to say that uh, an incident happened to me today driving down to Exmouth to the beach uh, where somebody pulled straight out in front of me um, as I was getting on to the away from the, the going towards the motorway junction. And they pulled straight in front of me from the left hand side of the road with no signals or anything. And I just want to praise the Lord that I didn't do anything. <laughs> I didn't flash my lights and toot my horn because I think because two years ago, uh, I had to give a little talk at our church about street, uh, how we behave uh, on the street, Christianity on the street. And one of the things I talked about was being uh, ready to get into a bit of road rage when driving the car. And since, since then, because I had to talk about it, I have been much more conscious, and I'm praising the Lord for that, that, that I seem to be, with his help, getting better at not getting cross with other drivers. And so I let this lady, it was, perhaps I, sh perhaps I shouldn't say that, um, this person uh, who pulled straight out in front of me, um, I passed them later on when it got to be a dual carriageway, but I didn't give them any filthy looks um, or whatever. But that, that's, that seems to be an area where the Lord's enabled me to, to get a bit better. Um, and a bit more uh, like salt uh, in the world and not like everybody else. So we're going to look today uh, at Philippians chapter four. So you might like to turn to that if you've got a Bible in front of you or a phone or a tablet. Um, oh, you probably can't look on your tablet or maybe not on your phone if you're watching this. Uh, but Philippians chapter four. And verse 10, and this is where uh, 
Paul speaks to the Philippians this time, the Ephesians last night, the Philippians tonight. He says this in verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, and I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul says, I have learned to be content. Well, I looked up in the dictionary what contentment meant, and it defines it as being satisfied or happy, pleased, comfortable, glad, cheerful, at ease, agreeable and being willing to accept things. Do we find life agreeable? Are we blessed? Are we at peace? Are we happy with our lives? Searching Wikipedia about happiness, we read this. There are various factors that have been correlated with happiness but no validated method has been found to substantially improve long-term happiness in a meaningful way for most people. It sounds like actually happiness or contentment is somewhat elusive. Yet the Good News Bible prefaces Matthew 5, which is the Beatitudes, it calls it true happiness. We're living, aren't we, in a world of change, a world of uncertainty and flux. There's unrest, anxiety and bitterness. There's a lack of trust for those in government. And we see things like knife crime on the increase. Discrimination is rife. And even the actions of those supposed to keep us safe are questioned. COVID-19 has rocked us all and changed the way we live day by day. Prevents, it's been preventing normal work patterns, causing anxiety, ramping up the NHS waiting lists. And above all, it's been curtailing our relationships with those that we normally meet face to face. And this has been something that's really hit all of us quite hard. We also live in a litigious society where the call is sue, sue, sue. There is corporate greed that pays no attention to individuals. Jobs come and go and, and profit is king. This was shown rather vividly recently with the attempt by the football club owners to maximize their profits. They simply designed a system that they thought 
they could sell to us all that would safeguard and increase their fortunes never mind the players or the fans i'm reminded of that story that jesus told in luke 12 you might want to turn to that luke 12 and in verse 15 jesus says this it's called the parable of the rich fool jesus said to them watch out be on your guard against all kinds of greed life does not consist in an abundance of possessions and he told them this parable the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest he thought to himself what shall i do i have no place to store all my crops then he said this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. God wants us to be content. In Hebrews 13 verse five, we read this, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? In Psalm 23, the uh, English Standard Version of the psalm says this the lord is my shepherd i lack nothing i shall not want the living bible puts another slant on it quite nicely it says because the lord is my shepherd i have everything i need and yet we're hungry for other things one timothy Chapter six, verse three says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul says, I have learned to be content. We learn contentment. 
we learn contentment. It's not a gift of the Holy Spirit. So how do we learn to be content? I want to suggest a, a few things. First of all, that we learn as we look to Jesus alone. We learn to be content as we look to God alone. Again, from the English Standard Version, Psalm 62 says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not, I shall not be greatly shaken. I like the Living Bible version of, of, of that Psalm 62. It says this, I stand silently before the Lord, waiting for him to rescue me, for salvation comes from him alone. Yes, he alone is my rock, my rescuer, defense and fortress. Why then should I be tense with fear? when troubles come. I like that bit. Why then should I be tense with fear when troubles come? It's a feature of so much of the Psalms that although there's lots going on all around the Psalmist, he eventually ends up realizing that God alone is his strength. And we're so used to, aren't we, relying on our own strength. Our first port of call when something goes wrong is what we can do. And then we start to look to others, partners, family, friends. We call in favours, but we need to call in God. Remember Nehemiah? In uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah, you might like to look at that, <clears throat> the story of Nehemiah, the cupbearer uh, to the king. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter one, he says, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanai, one of my brothers, came from Judah with other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then in chapter two, in verse two of chapter two, he says, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? 
Then the king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king, If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. We often call those kinds of prayer, don't we, arrow prayers. But that's just what Nehemiah did. He quickly appealed to God to help him. Recently, one of our university students in our home group shared some, that, uh, some guaranteed funding she was expecting from the EU uh, for next year had been revoked. I guess this is a knock-on thing from us coming out of the EU. Now, this funding would have enabled her to do a gap year working with the Christian YMCA that we have here in the city. And she was finishing university and then going to give this year to help in the YMCA. Well, my immediate thoughts were, Let's do the rounds of all the local charity options and maybe we can uh, cobble together enough funding so that she can still do that, enough funding for the year. However, uh, the group said, let's pray. And we prayed there and then for funding for this girl for next September. A few days later, the YMCA told her that they had been given a gift and that they decided that they wanted to use that gift to fund her to come and help next year. Now the amount of that gift was the exact sum that the EU would have been providing in the grant to her. Isn't that amazing? We also learn when things are going against us. Learning to be content is aided when things go against us, when we have circumstances beyond our control. Peter says, don't be surprised. In 1 Peter 4, it says this, dear friends, 1 Peter 4, 12, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And in Romans 5, we read, we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but also we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance character and character hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's clearly a message here that trials and difficulties can actually cause us to grow as Christians. I recall a really difficult time in my early years as a teacher, long time ago now. Everything had gotten on top of me and I almost had uh, a breakdown and I was uh, under the doctor taking pills and so on. Everything seemed against me. 
But I came to realize in all of that, in the time I had off work, that I was just seeking my own way and my own career advancement and not God's plan for me. And then I had to repent about that. And as I brought that to the Lord and began to put him first rather than myself, a direction then for the next step in my career became very clear. Now, 30 years later, this enabled me to stand firm, trusting God for another very difficult situation that this time was not of my own making. Turn me for, with me for a minute to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. Psalm 84 says this, how lovely are your, is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young. A place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Place, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs, and the autumn rains also cover it with pools. The, the valley of Baca is named that because it's named the Valley of Tears. It's a dry, waterless place, a place of heartache and difficulty. I wonder whether there are any of you who are tuned in tonight who are in the Valley of Baca. Are there misunderstandings? Are you suffering humiliation, hurts? It might be your job or lack of it. You might be suffering from cancer. You might be having problems with your children. It happens. You might be children having problems with your parents. It could be problems in your marriage maybe even divorce. What do people hear when we're in the Valley of Tears, the Valley of Baca? Do they hear moaning and groaning and weeping? Certainly not praising. Yet here in the Psalm we read, they make the Valley of Baca a place of springs and in the autumn rains they cover it with pools. In the Hebrew I understand the word there implies that it's a place of blessing. So I'm reminded of the the old chorus 
um, I, I won't attempt to sing it to you. Um, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And then the other verses, if, if no one joins me, I still will follow. And the last verse, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. We need to keep going and we need to learn that message that Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Now, he didn't say this in isolation. He knew the generosity of others and he knew the pain of living with discomfort. He writes about that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7, uh, speaking of his thorn in the flesh, Paul says this, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Lord, do do something, he said. Take it away. God wants us too weak to resist him. Some years ago, there was a, a diet pill called Accutrim. Now, it claimed to help you get thin by reducing your drive to eat. And it had a, a sort of snappy strap line. When temptation strikes, it acts the strongest when we're weakest. That's the pill. When temptation strikes, it acts the strongest when we are weakest. Timothy says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Strong in grace. How good is that? James says he gives us more grace. And that's why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Going back to Psalm 62, then I stand silently before the Lord, waiting for him to rescue me for salvation comes from him alone. Yes, he alone is my rock, my rescuer, defense and fortress. Why then should I be tense with fear when troubles come? Now, one of the things that also uh, keeps us unsettled and not happy and discontent is something that I've called unforgiveness. I'm not quite sure whether that's a proper word, but unforgiveness. How many times do we hear, I'll never forgive them for what they did? Maybe it's to me or maybe it's to other people. I'll never forgive them for what they did. 
dealing with forgiveness or the lack of it is a real problem in today's society. How many of us can relate a story of friends or family where there's a rift due to something that has been said or done and now, well, we don't talk to them anymore. In fact, it can often happen that this was so long ago that no one quite remembers what it was that caused the alienation in the first place. Barbara uh, has related to me often how she remembers as a, as a child walking down the street in Rochdale. Um, if any of you are familiar with that lovely place. Um, <laughs> I've just been poked in the ribs. Uh, Rochdale and her mother pulled her across and said, we've got to cross the street. And they crossed the street to walk on the other side because her father's uh, relatives were walking down on the opposite side of the road and they had to be avoided. Now, Barbara never, never knew uh, and doesn't know to this day what caused that to be the case. But there's an example of um, uh, something that had, had gone wrong and caused a rift. Unforgiveness can restrict what we do and who we do it with. It can blind us in all kinds of situations. We can bear grudges, just like Esau, perhaps not as bad as Esau, but in Genesis 27, 41, it says this, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to him, self, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. It can make us unwell, mentally, and perhaps even physically. Paul Tournier, in his book, Doctor's Casebook in the Light of the Bible, tells this story, story of a woman whose blood count changed very suddenly after she had been treated for several months for anemia. And her doctor asked her, has, has anything out of the ordinary happened to you since your last visit and test? She replied, yes, I suddenly have been able to forgive someone against whom I bore a nasty grudge. Such occurrences, says Dr. Tournier, are not rare. As I was preparing this talk, there was a programme on the BBC with the footballer Ian Wright sharing his experiences of the abuse in his childhood. And this reminded me of uh, a story in uh, a book by Dorothy Carswell. She has put together a book called Real Lives. And she tells how a girl brought up in a children's home uh, where she was abused both physically and sexually. And this girl began to find her feet eventually as a young adult uh, training to be a nurse and she became a Christian. But before all that, while she was in hospital, quite poorly for a, a very major operation when she was just a teenager, a young man brought her a letter from her school 
where they'd been praying for her. And the letter said, God means you to live. Well, that quite shocked this young girl. And she said to one of the nurses who was tending her, how, how can I find out about this God? Well, said the nurse, there's a Bible by every bed and you can have a look in there. Well, she did look in there and from this God spoke to Marie and she did actually come through the operation very successfully and got well and finished her studies and trained to be a nurse and in the process also became a Christian. And she writes about her Christian journey. She says this, as I walked along this road, I had to learn a very important thing called forgiveness. I had to learn that if I was to follow Jesus, then I had to choose to forgive the people who'd done these things to me. I thought they didn't deserve forgiveness, but God forgave me my sin and he wanted me to forgive them. To hand these people over by name to him and trust him to deal with them. I had to trust him to sort it out so that I wasn't carrying this pain and bitterness and resentment inside me. As I chose to forgive them one by one, name by name, for the things that they had done to me, I handed everyone over to this God that I'd come to know and I trusted him to deal with it rightly and then I let it go. My pastor and his wife prayed for me that the healing of God would come to my own emotions and let me become free inside as God had intended me to be from the beginning of time. All those pains, hang-ups, resentments and bitterness, all that feeling of imprisonment and being locked up and always on the outside of the group because I was different, just seemed to drop off bit by bit as God filled me with his love and healing. And I no longer dwelt on the memory of those things. I no longer woke up with nightmares, imagining myself with a knife in my hand going to kill the person that abused me. All that was released from me. The God who saved me and who was now saving my emotions and my memory from living in, a, in an imprisoned life had set me free. The Bible says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Facing the challenge of how to forgive is not easy but it's what we're called to do. Is there someone today that you have to forgive? Or is God asking you today to seek someone's forgiveness for something that you have done? Well, day-to-day -day circumstances are one thing, but maybe deep within ourselves we're unsettled, unhappy not blessed. 
we do live in a world of discontent and try and find out what it is for us, for our family, for our friends that will enable us to be happy, content and settled. This may be a drive for the next promotion at work, marriage, friendship, a better house, more money. It's self-evident, however, that these things do not bring contentment. We only have to look at the latest news to see the very rich and famous dying through substance misuse, the golden couple splitting up or getting divorced only to set up instantly with somebody else. All the world shouts to us that we must discover our true selves. To be uniquely you, this is really the answer. And there are all manner of self-help books, courses and movements, usually with some payment required. But self-esteem is the key. You can do it. You're the best. Well, Glyn Harrison, a professor of psychiatry at Bristol University and also a, a practicing consultant psychiatrist, points out in his book, The Big Ego Trip, that self-esteem was unheard of until the early, 19, uh, early 20th century. And he charts, charts the development of the self-esteem theories and gives a very good academic voice to the study of these and the statistics and records over the last 50 years. The 1960s saw a flurry of papers citing self-esteem as the cause of many social problems. And this led to a concertive effort in the 80s, especially in the USA, to incorporate self-esteem teaching into the educational system. This, it was thought, would alleviate problems such as teenage pregnancies, drugs, bulimia and depression. Of course, the boosterism of self then came to us in the UK. But Glynn points out that the long-term academic studies that are now available to us show that these efforts show no discernible change in the problems presenting themselves today in society. The key danger is that once feeling good about oneself, you have to keep it up and do things that keep supporting that self-image. That in itself becomes an unbearable burden. And he describes this self-esteem ideology as a psychological cul-de-sac causing more harm than good. And there's a, a professional opinion. We are, in short, being brainwashed by our culture. Yes, we do need, we need uh, a sense of significance in our lives, but this will not be found within ourselves. The essence of grace is that God move to, moves towards us despite and not because of who we are. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read this, chapter 7, verse uh, 6 and 7 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
the Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Egypt, the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The reason behind God's saving work is not found in us, the recipients. It's hidden in the mystery of, of God's purposes. God loves us because God loves us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse uh, 27, Paul says this. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness and redemption. Therefore it's written, let one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Our status, who we are, is settled at the cross. We can't be judged by anybody. We are counted as worthy. It's not that we're special for what we are, we are loved for who we are. I found this out in a new way when I lost my job as a deputy head. One evening, Barbara and I had a visit from the governors of the school. We were told that we would be leaving. In essence, there were various charges that I had undermined the school and the head teacher none of which were true. I was advised by my union that if I were to take the school to an industrial tribunal, I would certainly win. But the head was determined to get rid of me anyway. A compromise was reached that allowed me to stay at the school as an ordinary teacher to be out of management which I accepted. This meant a huge loss of status among my colleagues. Now, I mentioned earlier that my experiences in early years had taught me something of God's guidance and care. And at this very difficult point, I was able to cope because I knew I'd learned that my value, my status, my future depended not on what those around me thought, but on my position in Jesus. A sinner saved and made worthy for eternity. There is a new and insidious twist these days in our society. It's not just you can do it, I can do it, 
but if it's okay for me then it's right if it's okay for me then it's right this finds support within the social media platforms where any individual posting their feelings and challenges gains gains instant recognition and, and encouragement you you read things like follow your heart well done just be you follow your path to freedom i love what you're doing you're so strong nowhere is this more prevalent than in the whole area of identity and sexual preferences and gender there are no norms anymore you can be male you can be female you can switch you can be a unicorn or an alien or you can be gender neutral you can have sexual relations with anyone or none and the judgment is down to me i decide what is right i've just read quite a frightening book by a usa journalist not a christian and she chart, charts the latest craze amongst teenage girls in America. She records stories of girls and their families caught up in a craze that is a craze to be not looking like women as they develop. And this seems to be driven by social media with such platforms as Facebook and Twitter and Instagram they all feed off each other on these social networking sites how sick has our society become how far is this from paul saying be content i mentioned psychiatrist uh, glenn harrison earlier in his latest book god sex and human flourishing he calls for christians to tell a better story and this is what he says this is quoted from glenn's book as time passes it's become becoming ever more clear that the sexual revolution has failed people today are as confused as they ever have been the retreat from marriage has affected the poorest communities most seriously heaping injustice on the vulnerable especially our children the pornographization and sexualization of childhood is a tragedy unfolding before our eyes. Modern confusion over questions of identity have left a frightening emptiness at the center of what it means to be human. Faced with these realities, he says, we need to rediscover our vision for sex and marriage, a vision rooted in the big story of God's love for the world. Our identity is not something we discovered within ourselves or something shaped by our ever-changing culture. It's something that God has given to us. Our Christian identity is a sacred gift and we have discovered that we flourish as human beings when we live in harmony with who we really are. So in closing, 
contentment. What is important? God loves us. He reaches out to save us in Jesus. I know that I am secure in the love and righteousness that Jesus brings. Trials may come, but we should be encouraged by the song that Graham Kendrick wrote, for the joys and for the sorrows, the best and worst of times, for this moment, for tomorrow, and all that lies behind. Fears that crowd around me for the failure of my plans, for the dreams of all I hope to be, the truth of what I am. For this, I have Jesus. I have Jesus. And our purpose? Well, the purpose is not for just for us to be content, but as Peter says, that our lives may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus is revealed. So thank you for listening a bit longer than <laughs> it was tonight. But we're now going to go into some breakout rooms for some a time of sharing and discussion. And 